Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Michaeline Duclef is a correspondent for NPR's Science Desk. In 2015, she was part of the team that earned a George Foster Peabody Award for its coverage of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Prior to NPR, Duclef was an editor at the journal Cell, where she wrote about the science behind pop culture. She has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree in viticulture and enology from UC Davis. But today, she's here to chat about her best-selling book titled Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful, Little Humans. Michael, and Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It is so great to have you. I loved your book, Hunt, Gather, Parent. It reminded me very much of the Blue Zones, except for parenting. And so let's start with the why. Talk talk about your personal journey, hitting rock bottom, which led to this incredible book. Let's start. Let's go there. Yeah, you know, it was when my my daughter, Rosie, who I, I always want to say is an amazing kid like she's smart and strong and funny I mean she really is like incredible almost too too incredible in many ways but she's also just like a handful like she's persistent and emotional and strong-willed and all those things that we like to call you know really go-getter kids right and when she was a toddler like two she started having these horrible tantrums I mean just almost daily and you know I would read books I would read blogs you know I, I would listen to podcasts and I would try all these things. I wanted to help her so much. But in the end, it would just end up in this big battle between me and her. And I would eventually get angry and yell at her. And then she would eventually like bite me, hit me, kick me. I mean, it was just, it was really to the point, like you said, when I, rock bottom when I, you know, there would just be mornings when I, I would lay in bed and I would kind of dread her waking up, you know, it was just kind of like, stay asleep, you know, because it was just like, I didn't know what to do at all. I really didn't know what to do. And I kind of given up. And at the same time, totally independently, NPR, the, the place I work for, I'm a reporter, sent me down to this little tiny village in the Yucatan, a Maya village, to do a different story about children's attention spans. And while I was down there, I was just blown away by the moms in particular. The, the way that the moms and a few moms and specifically like interacted with their children I just didn't know parenting could be, to be honest, this easy. It just looks so easy. Like I said, like my parenting was like a white nickel ride on cat five rapids. And one of the moms, Maria uh, de Los Angeles, it was like her parenting was like we were riding on this calm, smooth river. Everything, you know, there was no yelling, no nagging, no bickering or arguing between her and the kids. And yet the kids were really great. They were generous with each other. They were respectful to their parents. And super, super helpful. One morning, her 12-year-old daughter, Maria's 12-year-old daughter, who was on spring break, woke up, walked past like 10 or something, and walked past me and her mom in the kitchen and just started doing the dishes like voluntarily from breakfast. And I was just like, does she do that a lot? And Maria was like, you know, she's 12 and she should know what to do by now. And, you know, not every day. And, And I really left there with this sense that like, okay, the problem isn't really me or Rosie. The problem is that I haven't been taught this kind of the most effective, most beneficial way to parent. And my culture hasn't taught me that. And really this book was about me and Rosie. I took Rosie with me, traveling to three different little 
communities in the world to really learn this way of parenting, this calm, effective way that, like I say in the book, maximizes cooperation and really teaches kids to cooperate with you and minimizes conflict, which I think a, a lot of our parenting kind of maximizes conflict. So, but before we go back to the Yucatan, uh, I, look, I feel your pain as a parent with the tantrum. We have a five-year-old and a two-year-old is almost three and, and the two-year-old, there were just some days where you just, oh, wow, she's going to be tough. And, and tantrums are difficult to handle as a parent. So how should we handle tantrums, misbehavior? Yeah. Yeah. It's a big one for me. I struggle. I, so it, what was really interesting is, so we went to three places, the Yucatan, uh, we went back to the Yucatan. We went up to the Arctic to an Inuit fishing village. And then we went to um, Tanzania to a community of hunter-gatherers. And what was remarkable is that in all of these places and over time while traveling, what I realized is that they all handle tantrums the same way. And they all do basically kind of the opposite of what I was doing and what I felt like I was being taught. The, the parent doesn't leave the child unless they're older and they feel like the child, you know, can do this on their own. But they never leave the child. They just kind of stand there with the child and be, inc and be incredibly calm. Like, like I say in the book, it's like they're using their energy to, to, to stop the tantrum. Like they're parenting with energy. So we were up in the Arctic and Rosie was starting to have a tantrum in a grocery store. And we were starting to get in this argument. And I think she had already like thrown a box of granola bars at me. Like it was just like... <laughs> And, you know, no other kid in this village was having tantrums except the babies. And she was starting to do this again. And the woman that was my interpreting for me and taught me so much, Elizabeth Tugumiat, was there. And she, at that point, had realized I had knew, no idea what I was doing as a parent. And she just came over to work. First of all, she became super calm. Like, just like I say in the book, like, she, like when you have a massage, that kind of feeling, like, her expression comes down. She walked over to Rosie very quiet and she pointed to something and was like showing Rosie something else and asked Rosie this very quiet question and Rosie just stopped like the tantrum just stopped and Rosie was like looking at her like she was a Martian and Rosie responded to her and then that was kind of it and I saw this like repeatedly like one time we were on walking on the road and she put she did this Elizabeth did the same thing she pointed up to the sky in this very like calm energy and what I realized, and after I did a bunch of research on this, is like children's energy and emotion mirrors ours so much. You know, like if we want our children to be energetic, we need to talk to them. We need to have energy ourselves. We need to, you know, and they will meet, they will match our energy. But if we want them to calm down, we have to go super calm. And what I was doing, even though I wanted to help Rosie, I was talking to her a lot. Are you okay? What's wrong? Can I help you? Do you need this? You know, and I was just feeding her like super high energy. And what I needed to do was just stand there, kind of be close to her and let her find that response in her, in herself. So it seems like many of us are getting tantrums wrong, but what else, myself included, what else are we getting wrong here in America and zooming out in terms of parenting styles, you know, you read about helicopter, you read about free range, like what are we getting wrong? You know, I think one of the big things that's making our lives a lot harder, which I try to focus on in the book is like, how can we do things like more efficiently and effectively? And I think one of the big things is 
we separate the child and the adult world so much, right? We think kids really need like entertainment. They need, you know, a screen, they need a class to go to, they need an activity, treasure hunts, you know, what are we, you know, I always had this feeling in my mind on the weekends, like, how am I going to fill the time with Rosie, right? And birthday parties, zoos, like all these things that personally I didn't enjoy at all. But what happens is children are not made for these things. These are very rare things around the world. And if you look throughout human history, children didn't have these things. Children did two things. I mean, for hundreds of thousands of years, human children have been with their parents while they work and have leisure, have parties, have hobbies. You know, parents include them into their world. They don't necessarily, they're not instructing them. They're just like, hey, you can hang out with me while I'm working on the yard. You can go with me while I run errands, you know. And then two children play, right? They play on their own. And, and because we've kind of forgotten, that's actually where children really thrive and what children need, like mentally to be healthy and happy is to do those two things. And the other stuff is highly stimulating. I would argue for Rosie, like causing really bad behavior and not teaching her the skills that she needs to be a functioning adult because children need to practice and learn to be in the adult world. And so when, after the first trip to the Yucatan, I noticed like the parents, the parents did nothing specifically for the kids on the weekends. There were no activities and, but the kids helped out. They helped out in the kitchen. They helped out in the yard. They helped out with the little ones and they played a lot. They ran around the whole, you know, little village by themselves. And what I realized after studying a lot and, and traveling is like, this is really what makes kids, one, mentally healthy, but two, want to, to help you, <laughs> want to be part of your team. You know, if you think about, you know, want to help to clean up after dinner, want to, want to, you know, make the beds in the morning because, because if they're part of your world and they're with you all the time when you're doing these things, then they see that as their purpose, as their role in the family to help. If they're always at a birthday party, always at a child-centered activity is what they call them, then they see their job and their purpose in, in the family is to do these other activities, right? That's a huge difference that we've kind of, and it's only happened in like the last 50 to 100 years that this shift has happened where kids are no longer part of our lives, but our lives kind of focus on, you know, we create these worlds for them. The other big thing is that parents argue with children. <laughs> Parents never argue with children around the world. I mean, like Elizabeth told me, she's like, yeah, one time my uncle argued with me when I was a kid and everyone made fun of him because he looked like a child. And, and like, there's just not this negotiation, this like constant kind of stream of bickering and like parents say things and then they walk away or they say things and they, they take action. And there's, you know, that's, that's another big difference and a big change in our lives. Once I stopped arguing with Rosie, our lives got a lot better. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, let's go back to the Yucatan. Besides being absolutely a gorgeous place, there's so much to learn in terms of how they're parenting. You know, as you mentioned in the oh, book, so the kids are helpful. They do their chores. They're flexible. They're cooperative. So what were the most salient takeaways for you that we can bring back to the States from the Yucatan in terms of how we parent on a day-to-day -day basis? So one of the key things is like, Never shoo away a child if they're showing interest in chores. <laughs> so there's studies that show that like American parents, you know, 
little toddlers, no matter if the the child is capable, little toddlers will come over and want to help with the laundry, want to help with, you know, dinner. And the, the American parents will tell them, no, go away. I need to do this. Go play. And what happens is they've shown over time that the kid decides like, this isn't for me. And the desire to, to help and be part of this team goes away with American kids by about age six or seven usually. And so that's number one. Like if a kid, no matter the age, comes over while you're working, while you're, while you're doing something, at least don't chew them away. Start talking to them. Make it social. Make it like this. Turn the chore into a social event. Like, okay, we're going to chat while we clean up, you know, and then get them involved a little tiny bit. And this is what the moms, I hung around with the moms mostly because that was what was culturally appropriate. But this is what the Maya moms were just like so good at is like giving the child the right amount of a task. Like I was giving Rosie way too big of tasks. So just tiny little things, stir the pot, cut, you know, chop the herbs. You know, if we're cleaning up the living room, it's like hand the kid the book and say, put this book away, you know, or go get the vacuum. So these tiny little pieces that are real and where the kid is actually helping you. And what the kid, this motivates children because they see, wow, I'm making a contribution. I'm making a difference. And kids want that. And that is way more motivating than praise or rewards or allowances. It's just being able to contribute to the team effort. So those are like the two big things. It's like never shoo away. Ask them to come over. You know, set aside a time in your week where like the activity is the chores. You know, like we, every Saturday, we do the laundry as a family mom, dad, Rosie, the dog. And it's like, that's the activity for those couple hours, you know? And, you know, Rosie's not involved every moment, but she's helping out here and there. And, you know, every Saturday we, we make breakfast together, right? And you don't, it doesn't have to be a lot, but what's happening is over time, you're teaching the child those skills. So when they're 12, they know how to make a meal, <laughs> you know? Because that's, they will learn from just watching and just little pieces of it. But two, you're teaching them to work together with you that, hey, we're a team. You know, we tend to divide things up into individual tasks. You go make your bed. It's your turn to do what, you know, do the dishes. It's your turn to do the laundry. And in many parts of the world, these chores are done as a team. This is, we're all making each other's bed. We're all, we all clean up after dinner together before we do anything else, you know, and what that does is that turns it into a social activity. It turns it into something um, that's fun for the for the kid because kids at the we forget kids young kids and I would even argue older children really want to be with us you know think about like all the times in your life when the child is really upset it's often when they're separating from you right, right. school drop off bedtime and they just want to be with you and so you say hey yeah you're gonna be with me but we're gonna also do something useful during that time <laughs> So, and kids have been doing this for, the, the thing is, kids have been doing this for like, there's so much data that kids have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years. They're with the family while the family does what needs to be done. And that's just how things go. And that's how they're built to learn. It, it, it makes so much sense. I'll, I'll give a shout out to my mother if she's listening. Our, our, my mother watches our girls. And one thing she does with them is she, she makes them help the laundry and they like doing it. And it, 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 it makes so much sense instead of being on, you know, the team child or team grown up, it's one team, the family unit, and everyone yes. plays a role. Exactly. It's funny. I was talking to this researcher who's a Mexican American and she said she watched the Brady Bunch and she told her mom when she was little, like, oh, I, I think I need an allowance to do the laundry. 
because in the Brady <laughs> Bunch, they get an allowance. And her mom was like, no, <laughs> we're a team and we do this together. And then she said, actually, if you don't start doing it, I'm going to start charging you. <laughs> I love it. She's like, because you eat here, you sleep here. And you know, this is, this is what a, a family member does. So you, you, you mentioned motivation and motivation is just, it's huge. It's huge. And so in terms of motivating our children, what should we do and what should we not do? So we really think that praise and rewards or punishments are like the, those are our tools in motivating, right? So much praise. I mean, gosh, just so much praise. And what psychologists find is that, you know, praise can be motivating in certain situations. It has to be kind of the amount of praise has to kind of equal the, the, the actual task for a lot of times. It's a very kind of tricky beast. You can actually really demotivate kids with praise. And you can actually also, it, 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 it often induces or triggers competition. And I see that even at my work, people compete for praise, but like siblings will compete for praise. So praise is not the, the best way to motivate a kid. Really, the way to motivate a kid is to acknowledge their contribution and see their contribution. Kids will have tiny contributions, but they will really feel them. I talk about a story in the book. I talk about a time when I was making kebabs. This was when I was really trying to understand what it meant to acknowledge a child's contribution. And I was making them how I thought was best. And Rosie comes over and she wants to help. And I'm like, okay, come help. But she wants to make this like all chicken giant kebab beast. And I'm like, no, that's not right. Like, that's not what we're doing. Totally demotivating. <laughs> like the worst thing you can do, right? And that's what I often do with like my husband too. Like, no, that's not right. That's not the way we do it. And she just ran off and started crying. And I was like, oh, great. That's perfect. Like, but what, after reading a lot about the Maya parenting and with the researchers, what I realized is she needed me to accept her ideas, you know, accept them and build off of them. And I was just completely rejecting them because I had felt like I knew the right way to do it. That's not cooperation. You know, that's leading. You know? And so I tried it again and I tried making the kebabs again and she came over and she made this massive chicken one again. And I said, okay, thank you. And I, I accepted her idea and her work. And I put the kebab on the tray and I could not believe it because then she started making them the way I was making them. <laughs> she started like cooperating because I had cooperated with her. And so motivation, motivating a kid is all about like letting them have a chance, letting them do their thing a little bit and then and accepting it, even if it's not perfect. Right. And that is going to be way, way more powerful than me saying, great job, Rosie, you know, and then redoing the kebab or, and I really learned over while writing this book that I was really not accepting her offers for help and her ways of doing things. And because I'm just so built to do things a certain way and to do them right and to do them efficiently. And I realized that if I just gave a little bit of room, a wiggle room, and stepped back just a little bit and let her have a shot at things, she was way more interested in it, way more willing to come help again. You know, and we started learning how to work together. If I think it, as a parent, the type of child we want to raise, you know, want our kids to be kind, cooperative. You mentioned we want them to be motivated. I also want our kids to be emotionally intelligent and confident, yeah. which you also touch on. So emotional intelligence, how can we support our children there? Yeah. You know, I think this calmness is the key. And I mean, it's hard to like really over exaggerate how calm the parents are. I know the New York Times 
criticized me for saying the parents were too calm. <laughs> she was like, the New York Times reporter was like, are they really that calm? You know, but they really are like so much calmer than, than the American parents that I'm around. So one of the key things is there's no yelling. Like there's none of this like scolding and yelling that is so common in the U.S. And and you ask Inuit elders, you'll say like, how, what's the most important thing parenting and they'll tell you like hundreds of them have told me like you never yell at a child you always talk to a child calmly and what that does is that allows the child to find that calmness in themselves to to settle themselves down to to stop for a moment before you act i mean that's what emotional intelligence is right is it's like stopping before you act and thinking and personally what i learned to be calm when rosie was not calm even if she's hitting me was hitting me you know really being very kind of violent as long as i stayed calm and centered and just she learned so quickly to stop having a tantrum i mean it was incredible how fast it went from like one a day to like one a month in like a couple weeks span when i started being calm it was me i had to change she could do it she learned so quickly I mean, the other thing is, I talk about this in the book, is uh, there's a lot of tools that the Inuit families use to get kids to stop and think. So they, oh, so we tend to tell children what to do, like, don't climb on that tree, you know, don't hit your brother, don't do this, don't do that. And I think I said all those things this past weekend. Yeah, exactly. It's like do and don't. And in, in, in the, in your, the Inuit parents rarely ever say that. Instead, they they ask the kid a question, like, what do you think is going to happen if, if you climb on that tree? Or they'll tell the kid the consequences of it. You know, if you throw those rocks, you're going to hurt your, your brother. And then that's it. And they'll tell you that the purpose of this is to get the child to think, right? And to get the child to make the right decision for themselves. And I think it's a much more, like, it, 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 it doesn't assume the child's just a robot and they're doing whatever you say. It assumes the child has, like, agency and is really thoughtful and can think and can figure things out and for a child like rosie who's you know very willful this is magical right you know because she wants to do the right thing she just doesn't really know she doesn't know the consequences of it so that's another major tool they have all these incredible tools they do these plays with kids these dramas storytelling is huge storytelling is huge across the whole world but you know and the idea is to really get the kid to think and figure out what's best instead of just assuming you know that they're kind of stupid. <laughs> confidence is another big one. And you had a lot to say about Tanzania. You called them the most confident kids in the world. So what are they doing so right there? Yeah, you know, and when you talked about motivation, I forgot. This is a huge tool of motivation too, is autonomy. So this is massive. This is a massive way, place where we, American parenting is kind of veered off the path a bit. So there's tons of research in Western psychology that autonomy is critical for kids' confidence, that they need autonomy. And what autonomy really is, is the feeling that you're making your kind of your own choices in the moment, like you're deciding kind of what you're going to do, where you're going to go, but you're also connected to people. So you have responsibilities to your siblings, to your parents, you're looking out for each other. So it's between this like free range and helicopter parenting, right? Because you have a lot of freedom to make choices and decide what you're doing, but you can't disrespect people. You can't, you know, you can't go around hitting people. You can't be kind of an asshole. <laughs> Sorry, can I say it? 
you know, to people, you have to be kind. You have to help. If somebody needs help, you have to step in and help, right? So it's this really beautiful mixture. And I think it's between free range and helicoptering. And I think it's really kind of the sweet spot of parenting. But the, the Hadzabe are world renowned for giving kids autonomy. And they know this is what makes kids confident and self-sufficient and self-driven. And there's tons of data to support this. Um, but what does that mean like in real life? And I think this is where a lot of parenting books kind of don't help you very much because what does it mean to give a kid autonomy? Because I thought I was giving Rosie autonomy and parents will tell me that. Oh, I give my kid autonomy. But then when you actually see it in action, it's like, whoa, like, no, I wasn't giving Rosie autonomy. In fact, I was being really bossy to her. So what I did is I actually recorded myself many times. I did this by accident the first time and counted how many times I was telling her things like, good job, or go do this, don't do that, you know, giving her instructions and feedback. And it was incredible. It was like more than one or two a minute. So we're talking about like 100 per hour, like feedback. And I've actually done this experiment with people, parents on the playground in San Francisco, and it can be really high. We talk to kids like all the time. And then I did this experiment in Tanzania, and we're talking about these, the parents there tell kids, like one or two things an hour. Like, that's it. <laughs> wow. And you know, the, the kids are with the parents. They're not watching TV or like they're outside and like, and so I, I, I challenged the listener to try it. Like, put, get your phone out and start a timer and try to give the kid three commands or three verbal instructions in an hour or one in 20 minutes. I, I, I'm going to try. I'm a little bit scared to look at my performance on that one, but I will definitely give it the effort this weekend. You know, something else I think is just so top of mind for parents. You know, you pick up any newspaper, go to any website, you read kids are more stressed than ever. They're more anxious than ever. And unfortunately, so many are experiencing depression for various reasons. And I'll also go back to Tanzania on that one. They're doing such an incredible job. What, what are they doing so well in Tanzania to help alleviate stress and anxiety? Well, the, the, the first thing is autonomy. I mean, th th that's the thing. It's like we know how to fix this anxiety and stress problem. We just, well, we know like kind of the high level how to fix it. They, they, there's a lot of data in Western psychology that supports like when kids feel like they don't have choices, right? They don't feel like they're deciding what they do from moment to moment. They don't feel like they have freedom. Over time, this creates enormous stress in people and that stress can develop into anxiety and depression. I mean, you know, like if you don't feel like you have control over your life, that's what causes anxiety, right? And American kids have very little control over their schedules. And then when they are in activities, they're being told what to do. I mean, it goes back to these commands. It sounds really silly, this experiment that I'm talking about, but it is really, I think, critical for American kids to, for parents to back off, you know, and at the macro level in terms of scheduling, kids need big chunks of time. They are deciding what to do. And then at the micro level, when you're around them, they need to move around. They need, you know, the Hatsabe, they give them this autonomy, but they're not throwing their hands up and not watching them. That's the key thing is that it seems like the kid had can, these little kids can go around and do whatever they want, but the parents were watching them incredibly closely to make sure they're safe, to make sure they can handle the situation they're in. And then they step in when they need to, right? But the other thing that I will say that all of these communities do is that they give kids, the kids are close to 
and have a very strong relationship, not just with their parents. And I think that this is something we forget. We forget that kids, human kids are really made to be raised by like about five people. And, and we're talking about grandparents, cousins, neighbors, siblings, older kids in the neighborhood. But there's data that shows that if a kid just has one other adult in their life that really cares about them and the kid feels close to, it buffers them for, from all these mental health problems later in life. So we don't need five. We don't need a village. Kids just need like one or two other people in their lives that they feel like they have support from. And, and even just a kid that's a couple of years older, Rosie had this neighbor who was two years older and, and he was amazing to her during the pandemic. He helped to take care of her and they became very close. And I think that buffered her some from the stress. And the parents need this too, right? Because this gives the parents a break. So we could, they called, they're called Alamo parents and they're very, very, very important in children's lives. It's so fascinating. And I have a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, we had Dr. Lisa Miller on the podcast recently and, and she's done a lot of work on spirituality and the role it plays with children and anxiety and had some really interesting findings where, you know, in, in affluent cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, LA, where, you know, ki kids have the best education resources that they're more stressed than in places where less affluent, less resources. And one of the conclusions was the, the way we're parenting in these cities, culturally, a, a lot of interaction is around performance, mm. you know, yes. great job at school, you know, great, you know, you got an A or, you know, you scored a goal versus did you have fun so the, the, there's an expectation where affection or love is somewhat linked to performance which i i found to be interesting and the other dynamic and i'm curious your take on this my wife and i are big fans of of the arts and sports mm. for kids and the reason we like it is, you know, you have parameters where it's like, okay, this is what we're doing at art or, or and, and sports specifically sports where there's creativity and freedom involved mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus uh, a sport, you know, just you swimming, for example, it's like, you need to swim and come back. It's like, right, th there's not right. a lot of creativity involved. Whereas soccer, for example, is like, you're going to kick the ball and you got to react to the ball and you have to move around and, and art, you know, there's a structure like today we're going to draw a face but so you have an opportunity to have autonomy somewhat right, right within with some guardrails if you will right right and to us that sort of versus the kids going to go to math class right right major lessons exactly so like what's your t is there something to be said for that or, or are we onto something or, or are we getting that wrong one wrong too no no i think you know, I would include, I think what we're kind of missing, I think absolutely, you know, every culture has some sports and kids play games and they compete. And this is a human universal. It's a way of like, I think a way of, you know, improving yourself. But I think the piece that's missing, at least in the, in our minds, is it's the social aspect of it. So it's like, okay, did you score the goal? Is that the emphasis? Did you have fun? That could be the emphasis, but also Hey, did you work together? Did you yeah. see how you did the pass with so-and-so? Or, you know, did you enjoy being with your friends? Like, I remember for me, my dad wanted me to be like a basketball star and I was never going to be a basketball star. <laughs> but like, I really enjoyed 
the friendships of the team, right? And for me, it was a social thing. And I think for a lot of kids, that's what they need, right? They need these connections and these deep connections where they're interacting and, and working together, right? And that's where I think sports can really, you know, but it's what do you emphasize to the child, right? Like, oh, wow, I really saw you working together. Did you really enjoy being with so-and-so at the, you know? And I'm actually working on a new story I'm so excited about looking at like what makes people happy around the world. And the biggest component of it is relationships and having one of the researchers called relationship wealth versus a lot of kids, I think in the U.S., as he would say, are you know, relation, relationally, relational poverty, you know, and, and so I, that's, I, that's what I see in that is like this, this fantastic opportunity to build connections and feel socially supported people don't realize like even just just as important as not smoking and eating right and exercising is feeling like you have support that if something goes wrong there's somebody there for you that is such a predictor of of health and, and we don't hear much about it you know and i think one of the reasons is i think we haven't taught kids the importance of it and and um the importance of it kind of selfishly, like the importance of my health, but also my mental health and my happiness, that the, a big source of joy in humans, researchers are starting to realize after all this time, is by helping others and caring about others. It can be a very selfish thing. It is. And I, I think it, it, one of the many lessons of the pandemic, uh, having meaningful IRL connections is absolutely critical for your, your health and well-being. Yeah. And I think it's the parent's job to teach the child that, right? And I think we lose sight on the performance and the individual achievements that like, at the end of the day, you're going to be 30 somewhere, living somewhere. And what's going to bring you joy in life is being with your neighbors, being with your family, you know, building connections with your kid. That's even if you go to, to, to a tier three school, or a tier one school, like, you know, at the end of the day, we're, that's really what's going to bring us joy. And, and you know, it, it just doesn't matter. It, it, it really doesn't. And my perspective, my, my personal experience, you know, I, I, I played every sport. I played basketball all the way through college. I played basketball at Columbia, you know, tier one Ivy League school. I will say I learned more about life from playing basketball than I did at Columbia without question. And, you know, I learned about adversity. I was on teams that lost a lot. Very easy to, very easy. It's just like life, very easy when things are going your way and you're winning. When you're losing, it's very easy to point fingers, lay blame, very difficult to stay together and continue to push forward and learn about, you know, I grew up in a very, white neighborhood, I played basketball on a team where I was one of two white kids learned very quickly about, you know, different cultures, different communities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different hardships very early on. And if I go back to those, you know, life lessons, way more played, played much more of a significant role in who I am today and my mm. success than Columbia. So interesting. 
as parents, and I think this is a personal question, you always have to think about, you know, what is really important? What do you want for your child? Like, yeah, sure. Do you want your kid to fall behind and be, you don't want your kid to be at the bottom of your class. Cause that, that, you know, you think about. Yeah. Comes with hardships. Know, exactly. You know, but you want your kid to be, if I think about what we want, you know, spiritually and emotionally resilient, kind, generous, motivated, and, and what else really, you know, I'm trying I'm thinking out loud here, but what else really, you want your kids to be good, kind, happy kids. Yeah. You yeah. aren't lazy, you know, motivated, like right, obviously right. motivated, right. curious, you know, I, I think about in today's world, what's really important, you know, conflict resolution, right, being right. able to empathetic, be right? like empathetic. To... Yeah. Empathy. Wow. That's the lost art of empathy. Where'd that go? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. And you know, there's a lot of data that show that ki the kids start off very much this way. We think this is one of the points of the book. Like we think kids are kind of nefarious creatures that are selfish and pushing buttons and pushing boundaries, but the data actually support a very different view. It supports a, a child that's generous and cooperative and helpful, super helpful toddlers, you know, but we kind of put on them this other narrative. And what ends up happening is I think they kind of fulfill that narrative. Um, it's just that they look very clumsy. Like one of the, the moms in the Arctic said, you know, Rosie doesn't want to hurt you when she's hitting you. You know, she's not pushing your buttons or manipulating you. She just doesn't know how to handle herself. She doesn't know how to handle the moment. And you have to show her by being calm and quiet and empathetic. And I think switching that narrative in my mind was such a huge thing because if I come at her thinking, she's manipulative and pushing my buttons, <laughs> I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be defensive. I'm going to be conflictual, right? But if I come at her thinking, oh, she's trying her best, she just doesn't know, she's a little tiny kid, then I'm going to be empathetic and calmer. And I, that switch I made with Rosie, then I've been trying to make it with adults too. <laughs> you, know? you know, they're trying their best, some of them, <laughs> but, you know, trying to just be a little bit more like, okay, we're all trying our best and it's hard. It's hard living in this society. It's not easy. It, it is not. And look, the we all have our own individual parenting styles and you have so many great tips and stories in the book. I'm curious, is, is there one tactic, one approach that no matter what your style is, you think every parent would benefit from incorporating into their own unique parenting style? Oh, that's good. I mean, it is really good to point out that there's no, I think we are taught there's like one way of doing things a lot. And I think what I learned is that there's, so many ways work for different kids even right like a parent will tell me what well, depends on the kid you know and like <laughs> let me think about like i mean stopping arguing with rosie was huge and it it really it really changed our dynamic because she very quickly realized i wasn't going to negotiate with her anymore and i just put a put my hand on her shoulder and say like you know i'm not going to argue with you rosie let me think We've touched on so many of the good ones. I definitely say try the commands. I think that will also really give any child that's struggling with confidence and, but also kind of resistance and is argumentative. I think that will really kind of shift the dynamic if they see that you trust them a little bit more. Okay. I think that one thing that, that, that anybody can do is just to be quiet. Great advice for adults. Be quiet holds yeah. true for, for a parent, for those who have children and those who do not. Yeah. We talk so much 
And like whenever anything is like going crazy in our house, I'm just like, we practice now being quiet. I'm like, I'm setting a timer. We're going to be quiet for 10 minutes. And 10 minutes goes by and what's going on? stressed. And we started with 10 minutes a day and or even 10 minutes every couple of days. And when, you know, now we can go like 45 minutes. Wow. So in closing, what is your hope for us parents here in America? Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, I hope that the pendulum can swing a little bit from we are so focused on individual accomplishments, right? You alluded to this. Like, did you score the goal? Did you get the A? And I, one of the researchers I talked to recently said, I think the pendulum's going to swing back to focusing on really like group, more group, like, you know, did I help this person? Did we do this together? Because it's sad and lonely over here. In the, in the, you know, we're creating these kids that are kind of islands and, um, and over here where you're working together and, and you, your accomplishment is more than you. And maybe you are lifting somebody else up. It's so much, you feel so much more supported and there's so much more joy over there and it's hard, (laughs) but that's my hope. I hope that we can like, we can see the benefit of the activities because we're connecting it. I mean, to me, to be personally, like personally, just learning to cooperate with Rosie, like work together, like genuinely work together. We're like, I'm listening to her and building off of her ideas. And she's listening to me and building off my ideas is one of the most wonderful things I've experienced in my life. I'm not kidding. And I, I hope that every parent can feel that at some point. Amen. Well, I, I, I love the book. It's a must read for, for any parent and, and we all hope to feel that. And I think everything you outline in the book is just so powerful. So again, congratulations. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Your thoughts have been so wonderful. 